the sport is a lot simpler when you just don't worry about all this stuff. Right. It's just running, realistically. Like <laughs> yeah. everyone wants to make it this big, complicated thing, but it's a pretty simple thing. Like uh-huh. everyone can go for a run, and it, you don't have to think about like all these tactics all the time, and you don't have to worry about the courses or the hills or the turns or the weather. Like it's just running. Like just get out of your own way. One of the kind of buzzwords in sports and business right now is like process oriented. And for me, what that means, being process oriented, means like A, focusing on day by day, and B, not judging my performances down the line against other people. Mm-hmm. Um, they're based on what I feel like I can do and whether or not I got the most out of myself. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I don't need to worry about anyone else. Mm-hmm. I just want to do the best that I can do. And the more I get sucked into what other people are doing, the worse the end result ends up being, I I think. Really, I'm free to take big chances. I'm free to go out there and just run as hard as I can and whatever those results are will be fine because the things that are really important, the people that I care about, will still be there. That's Scott Fauble, and this is The Ritual Podcast. Rich Roll Podcast. Greetings, planetary citizens. What's happening? My name is Rich Roll. I'm your host. Okay. For most of us, beating our 26.2 PR by three plus minutes, well, that would be considered a good thing, right? Something to be celebrated for sure, but hardly mind-bending. At the elite level, however, the distinction is vast. The difference between being considered a very good marathon runner and one of the great marathon runners. This is the story of Scott Fauble, historically a very, very good and accomplished cross-country and 10K runner. At the 2016 Olympic trials, he finished fourth in the 10,000 meters, but unproven at the marathon. That is, until he ran 212 in Frankfurt in 2017 and followed it up in 2018 with another 212 at the New York City Marathon. And those performances definitely established that he was very good at marathon running, of course, but nobody, uh, perhaps aside from Scott himself and his coach and close circle of teammates and friends, was prepared for what happened in Boston this past year when Scott surprised the world by doing what is almost unheard of at his level, shaving almost three and a half minutes off his marathon PR to finish as the top American and seventh overall with a time of 2.09.09, landing him in very rare air amongst the world's very best at the 26.2 discipline. That performance made Scott a favorite heading into February's Olympic trials and certainly a figure of intrigue for this show. But I think what makes Scott even more compelling are his many rounded interests outside of running. He's a great writer. He co-authored, along with his coach, Ben Rosario, this book called Inside a Marathon, an all-access pass to a top 10 finish at the New York City Marathon. And it's this kind of beautiful, transparent look behind the scenes at what it actually takes to train and compete at his level. And it's simpatico with how he transparently logs all of his training on Strava, which is very unique among the elite. He also makes YouTube videos. He even has his own podcast, which I appreciate, called Showrunners, where he breaks down his favorite movies with fellow elite runners. And this one's great. We're brought to you today by Momentus. 
Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentous products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentous.com richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in Fleetfoot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I 
get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. Okay, Scott, I love this guy. Uh, This conversation runs the gamut. We cover his start, his young running career. We talk about what it's like living and training in Flagstaff, Arizona under Ben Rosario and the Hoka NAZ, Northern Arizona elite team. Of course, we go deep on his huge performance at Boston, his training techniques, his strategies, his preparation for Olympic trials, his book Inside a Marathon, his showrunners podcast, uh, the mistakes he sees many amateurs make, which is super uh, informative and entertaining, as well as his deep, deep love for burritos, an affinity I can safely say that I share. So this is me talking with Scott Fobble. Right on, right on, right on. All right. Good to have you here today, Scott. So nice to meet you. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for having me, Rich. It's it's awesome. Pleasure to be here. I uh, I welcome you to the Northern Arizona of Los Angeles. <laughs> it's as close as we can get to your uh, to your training grounds, but it's pretty nice up here. So I appreciate you making the trek. Of course, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, what I really want to talk about before anything yeah. is the Showrunners podcast. The showrunners, all right, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, we could just like, yeah, let's, let's just talk in. about movies. Let's just now. dive right in, man. That's yeah. I mean, that's why I started the podcast. I know. I like talking about movies. There, it's a fun run conversation, which is where I spend most of my like social time with friends and stuff. Uh-huh. And um, I was just like, I'm got free time. I would like to just kind of watch movies in a more uh, like structured way. And I was just like, let's just do it. And yeah. I. I talked to a friend of mine who owns a, or I guess not, maybe not owns, but runs a running website, uh-huh. um, Sidious Mag. And right. I was like, Chris hey, Chavez? Chris Chavez, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And I was like, hey, can I have my own podcast? Uh, I just want to talk about movies with my friends. And uh-huh. he was like, yeah. <laughs> and so it was perfect. I don't How have, dare you think about anything but running? I know, exactly. That's right. I'm one dimensional. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I love it. I think it's so cool that you're doing that. Thank and you. I would be delighted to just talk about movies and nothing else the whole time if that's what you want to talk about. You must be tired about talking about Boston and all of that. Uh, well, you know, we can mention it here and there, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah. We, I'd love to hear your takes on the new Tarantino movie. Um, oh, we can do a whole deep dive on Once yeah. Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> I'm ready to go. Like you, yeah, it's sort of rewatchables with runners. Basically. That's yes, very yeah. much so. It's uh, you know, I don't want to take too much credit for the idea, but it's very much a ripoff of yeah, re- yeah. Well, I love that show. Yeah, anyway, it's great. I'm a huge fan of it. So I thought it was super cool that you're doing that. And I think it's cool that 
that you live this full life. Like you're, you're at the, you know, the very tip of elite, um, marathoning and, and yet you still carve out time to develop your interests with this podcast and writing the book and, you know, all the other things that you do. Um, so I'm interested, I guess, first of all, in just hearing how like that informs your run, like, I, I presume that having all of those other interests is super important in terms of you just being a happy person so that you can perform at your best, whereas certain people might look at that as a distraction, especially going into Olympic year. Yeah, I think, so for me, it was very strange for me to go from a college setting where I was very intellectually stimulated to a professional running set, setting where there's really no structured way to flex your mind. Uh -huh. And for maybe a year, I really like leaned into that, and I just like binge watched The Office and Parks and Rec and Thirty right. Rock a hundred times. Um, <laughs> and then after I maybe, don't have anyone to talk about with yeah. this. <laughs> and after maybe a year, I was like, I gotta like I gotta find mm. something else to fill the time. And um, that's now at this point, I've I'm doing it in a way that I feel comfortable like sharing and having like structured interests and making it more as like an outward thing as opposed to me just reading a book yeah. inside. Yeah. Well, uh, there's only, I mean, I, I would imagine your training schedule puts you at somewhere around 25 or 30 hours a week, which still leaves a lot of time, right? Or, well, there's all the extra stuff on top of that. I mean, it is a full-time job, but there's still downtime. Yeah. Uh, I would say it's, if you include napping, maybe 25 <laughs> hours a week, like it's a, it's a soft 25 hours and, um, it's not like watching movies is strenuous by any means. I'm not yeah. like going out and doing CrossFit in my spare time. Right. And that's not, I can watch a movie and recover at the same time. So um, it was kind of a way to like use my spare time in a way that felt mentally productive. Yeah. Well, getting my head around you and your life and your career in, in preparing to talk to you today, most of the media coverage um, about you was kind of right post- Boston, so which we're going to get into, but I'm interested in kind of where you're at now, um, as you know, some time has elapsed and you're preparing for trials and you got a race this weekend um, coming up. Like, where's your head at? How are you feeling? What is your you know sort of mental perspective? As we're like what 190, 180 days out of trials at this point. Yeah, I'm not sure. I yeah. I don't count Good. down. Good for you. Yeah, um, I'm. Yeah, so. Physically, we're doing a segment where I'm not going to run a marathon this fall. Mm -hmm. um, we decided to get away from the marathon after running Boston. And what's the what is that decision about? Uh, it was so I ran New York Marathon last year, mm -hmm. Boston this year, and that was a whole year of marathoning. And the thing about the marathon is it's very hard and very specific, and so you don't really have time to do some stuff that don't really lend themselves to the marathon, but is still important to work on. So uh -huh. shorter tempos, speed stuff. Um, so for the long term, that will be helpful. But we kind of needed to find a place to do it before the Olympic trials segment really started. And we really got going on really marathon-specific stuff. So physically, that's kind of where I'm at. I'm doing a lot of workouts that I don't feel really comfortable in. Like I'm not, They're not the workouts that are really my bread and butter, but will be important for the Olympic trials in a few months and in, are particularly important as we build into the segment where we really get ready for the trials. Yeah. Um, you know, mentally things haven't changed for me. I am very much a believer that like the best way to 
accomplish goals down the line is to do really well at what you're doing right now. Mm-hmm. So whatever is on my schedule, I just try to do as well as I can mm-hmm. in that. And I have faith in like my coach and the people around me that um, if I do kind of what they say as well as I can right now, the larger puzzle will come together down the line. Right. It, it feels like you've really, um, part of your your mindset game is to divest yourself of thinking too hard or much about the preparation, like you really trust your coach mm-hmm. and you let him make those decisions and that frees up some kind of headspace for you to just be you. Yeah, I think that that's, that's probably accurate. And it's just generally being like one of the kind of buzzwords in sports and business and everything right now is like process oriented. And for me, what that means being process oriented means like a focusing on day by day and B not judging my performances down the line against other people. Mm -hmm. Um, they're based on what I feel like I can do and whether or not I got the most out of myself. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, right now it's just, it's been about getting the most out of myself every day and whether or not that's a hard day or an easy day, so be it, you know. I heard you speaking, maybe it was with Chris, you were talking about what you respected in Kipchoge and and perhaps, you know, some of the other East African runners. And one of the things is like, they don't worry about all that stuff, like whether they change the course or, or, you know, all the kind of externalities that can throw people off their game. Like they seem to, that's just, that's just, you know, water under the bridge to them. Like they're so focused on what they're doing. So when I hear you say that, it sounds like you've adopted, you're, you're striving to adopt that kind of mentality. Yeah, hopefully where it's, I think it's the sport is a lot more simple, a lot simpler when you just don't worry about all that stuff. It's just running realistically. Like (laughs) everyone wants to make it this big complicated thing, but it's a pretty simple thing. Uh Everyone can go for a run and you don't have to think about like all these tactics all the time and don't have to worry about the courses or the hills or the turns or the weather. Like it's just running. Like just get out of your own way is kind of my own like right. internal but, mantra. But post Boston, there's a lot. There's a bigger spotlight on you now. Like yeah. you're not you're not as under the radar as you were a year ago, two years ago, right? Mm-hmm. So do you is do you feel that, or do you do your best to insulate yourself from all of that? My hope is that it it doesn't change anything. Uh-huh. The fact that I'm in a bigger spotlight, and I think mentally it it hasn't changed anything because, like, I have. I think I'm viewed as being very confident now, but I was confident on April 14th too. Like yeah. I didn't necessarily surprise myself that I ran that well in Boston. I kind of knew that that was mm-hmm. possible. And so it's not like I have to make a change. I knew I was capable of it then. And now it's just, it's on the, it actually happened, but I kind of believed it was going to happen beforehand. Right. right. Yeah. But at Boston, you were like, what was your bib number? Like 28 or yeah. something like that. 28. Right? So, you know, if you were to make a surge or, or, or try to do something spectacular, there was the chance that they would let you go. I mean, we're going to tell that whole story, but you could have done a little bit of a sneak move that you probably can't get away with now. Yeah, maybe. Right? I'm not really sure. All eyes on you. Right. Yeah, probably not. Yeah, maybe I could still get away maybe. with a Boston. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, uh, Meb won after he was very, very good already. Had done some great things. Mm-hmm. So there's a chance. I don't really know. Um, but yeah, I don't really. I'd hope that I don't change based on the fact that uh-huh. I have a spotlight on me now. Yeah, and and I also heard you say shortly after Boston that 
you know, the, it, it would be a mistake for you to alter your training too much. Like, this is what worked. This is what got me to this place. Like, let's kind of stay on this path and not, you know, make some rash decisions about changing up too many things leading into 2020. Is that still the yeah, case? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's probably the biggest mistake people make is like they have this sort of breakthrough performance and like, well, let's just push the envelope. Let's just keep mm -hmm. pushing, pushing, pushing. But really the way we got to this point was by picking and choosing when we were going to really push and then also just hitting singles. You know, we just right. got, trying to get on base, trying to do well at everything we did. And occasionally you swing big and try to have a really big day, whether that's in a workout or like Boston in a big mm -hmm. race. But um, yeah, I think it would be easy to, get really results focused but again i wanted to stay like this is the process that got us here let's just keep getting better at this and yeah. i just we just have faith that the results will come right well let's work our way up to this so you start out you start out as essentially a, a cross country protege in colorado right sure stand out yeah. high school cross country mm -hmm. runner um, then you go to Portland, you run NC2A, and and you were a standout, but it wasn't like you were winning tons of races, like lots of 12ths and 15ths and things like that. And I guess you got injured in your senior year. Yep. Um, so perhaps you know you weren't able to show what you were truly capable of at the time. But it wasn't like, oh, here's the next new face of you know American distance running. Is yeah. That, is that fair? Absolutely. Like, no, yeah. absolutely. I you know I mean I don't think I'd be going like. Be speaking out of turn when I said I signed right. for zero dollars. My uh -huh. first, my salary at the start was zero dollars. And I signed my first contract in my girlfriend's Mini Cooper with a boot on my foot. Right. It was a very <laughs> inauspicious like way to start a professional running career uh -huh. and not at all how I had ever dreamed of it. Um, well, I love how the book opens up with this email exchange. Yeah. Uh, you know, where yeah. basically you're trying to, uh, you know, you're trying to get on this team you're trying to get on the, the Northern Arizona team, and uh, Ben is like Ben Rosario, the coach is like, nah, I don't think so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm not sure if <laughs> yeah, you're good enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it took a little jockeying and back and forth, and a, and a word put in by Shalane's husband mm -hmm. to even get, get you know get your name on that roster. Yeah, absolutely, and I'm super grateful for Steve to Steve uh -huh. for going to bat for me because he absolutely didn't didn't need to. Steve Edwards, Shalane's husband. Yeah. Um, and I think probably when I emailed Ben, he was like, "Yeah, all right, like this. I guess this guy's fine." But at that point, like, um, you know, we had Ben Bruce was running in his prime. He was running like thirteen thirties in the five k and eight twenties in the steeple. And Matt Yano had just run one hundred one forty five. And I was kind of asking, "It's like, can I please come and like I'll figure out a way to pay for things. You don't have to pay me anything." Uh -huh. And Ben was like, "Is this guy really going to be good enough?" And yeah, I mean, I I'm just happy to have it, have had a chance, really. So how does it work? Like when you're graduating from college and you're a standout performer and you're trying to get, you know, in on one of these squads, like there really is a gate, right? Like you have to impress the coach or you have to be invited. Like how does, you know, what is, how does that work for somebody who knows nothing about like elite running? Yeah, the business structure for elite running is a lot like golf in the sense that we like have sponsors and there's prize money, it's just way less. Just uh -huh. whatever you th see on the PGA Tour, just way less than yeah. that. Um, <laughs> and it kind of depends shocking. on- Yeah, shocking, of course, yeah. Um, it kind of depends on how good you are. So if you are good enough where you're kind of lighting the world on fire in college, people will come to you. Mm -hmm. And if you're in my position, I kind of felt like I had to go to coaches. And I was very lucky to have um, been introduced to Shalane's husband, Steve Edwards, and 
um, he kind of gave me enough guidance to be like, this is some people you could look at. And what I did was just went to every professional running team's website that I could find and emailed as many coaches as I could find their contact info. Uh And then um, Ben got back to me and uh, I was fortunate enough that he was like, took enough of an interest in me to um, fly me down to Flagstaff and I got to meet the team. And I don't think... I wasn't like a huge risk, you know, he didn't have to like designate any money to me at all, but he was basically like, you can come on the, come if you work really hard, you can run well enough to earn a salary. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, that's kind of how it happened. I just put out as wide a net as I could. And when Ben got back to me, I knew that was kind of where I wanted to be. Um, I clicked really well with Ben Rosario, my coach. And, um, that was that I moved to Flagstaff in, I mean, I guess it would be, Almost four years ago today. Yeah. Yeah. What is it that Ben was doing or that was, you know, indicative of like, you know, his coaching ability? Like what was happening in Northern Arizona that caught your fascination? Like I was going to ask, I mean, it sounds like you were emailing everybody, but, um, you know, what is specific to that program that makes it so um, unique and excellent? Yeah. We, the team had signed with Hoka Oneone, which we're still with now, Hoka and AZ Elite, um, as like a title sponsor earlier in the year. And that was kind of a big thing that caught my eye because a lot of these groups, they don't have any funding. Mm-hmm. And even though I wasn't necessarily getting paid, there is like an infrastructure and a prestige that comes with having a title sponsor. So that was one thing. Um, and then I was really, really drawn to Ben's confidence and Ben's like professionalism. Like He was absolutely 100% all in as a coach. It was like a full-time job for him. And that's, even though there are quote unquote professional teams, that's not something you find all the time. There are a few professional full-time coaches and there are a lot of people who are like coaching after work. So when you show up, do you have to get like a part-time job or like how do you make ends meet when you're just beginning? Yeah, so I worked a ton. Flagstaff, if for those who haven't been there or don't know, it's not really a great place to find like part-time jobs. Uh And it's especially not, a great place if you say, well, yeah, I can't come to work anytime between eight in the morning and 11. <laughs> and uh, a couple times during uh-huh. the, uh, like in the evening, I'll be gone from three to five. Uh-huh. And, and I need to nap. Yeah, and I need to nap and I can't come on Thursday nights because uh-huh. that's when we go to the weight room. You should move to Los Angeles. There's lots of people like that. Yeah. <laughs> Every actor schedules something along those lines. Yeah, so I, I mean, basically I just made a resume and handed out a bunch of places, and but I always made sure to put like running first, and I worked a ton over the summer before I moved to Flagstaff, and basically just burned through burned through my savings as, mm-hmm. like pretty quickly, um, and I was fortunate enough to run very well at the end of the year, and basically do enough to earn a salary right. starting January first, and then ran well enough to kind of earn raises throughout. Right. The year in my career. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, like having to bootstrap that on yeah. a dream, you know what I mean? It was pretty stressful. I mean, there were times when my card got declined. Like uh-huh. and I was just like, Well, I guess I'm not buying <laughs> I guess I'm not like I guess I'm not buying yeah. these groceries. Like I'm gonna go home and yeah. like I got another like another like living stipend coming in a couple of days. So I guess that's when I'll go get groceries. So romantic. Oh, it was amazing. Your dream, right? Yeah. <laughs> so there you are. I mean, one of the things well, first of all, Steve in his email to Ben um, is like, "Listen, you know this guy's a marathoner. You hadn't run mm-hmm. a marathon yet, but he saw that in you. You know, bird bones or whatever. But he's got some strength on him. He's like perfectly suited for this. So there was a sense that you 
you know, were well suited for that discipline before you'd even ever um, tried it. So when you went to Flagstaff, was that the idea? Like, I'm going to step it up and move to the marathon? Not right off the bat, but that was quite clearly where I was going to have the most success. And Uh it was just kind of a question as to how long until I'm ready to make a responsible jump to the marathon, as opposed to just jumping right in. Right. Um, Because I had a qualifying time for the Olympic trials, which were going to be in February. From running the half, right? mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I could have gone straight to the marathon in February of 2016, but we kind of decided to push that back and just be like, let's get miles under our belt. Mm -hmm. Let's get comfortable in some of these long workouts before we go 100% all in. Um, on the marathon, and we ended up doing that. I was still very young for yeah. going to the marathon, at least for um, American marathon. Yeah, I mean that's one of the things that's pretty unique about you is that traditionally uh, it's many years later when when the elite runner kind of steps it up to that distance, and you made that jump much sooner than most people, which puts you like now. You know, what are you twenty seven now? Something like yeah, yeah, twenty seven. I mean, that's really young. You know. Yeah, I mean. And three, only three marathons under your belt. Yeah, and I mean, I think I'm kind of entering my prime uh, physically, uh-huh. you know, from probably 28 to 32 is when you probably have all the tools. You haven't lost the fast twitch fibers, but you're probably not as injury risk, but you can, you've run enough miles to be really good. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of of the opinion that you should be running your best event when you're at your physically most capable. Right. And so maybe I could train really hard for a spring and run sub 1330 on the track or something like that in the 5k and a i have no interest in doing that and b um i would i'm better at the marathon so i think right. it's important to be doing what you're best at when you're going to be the best at running in general yeah and i think there's still so much room for improvement because you are still relatively new to it and you're young you have your speed you can handle you can probably handle volume more than you know an older person you're going to be less injury prone so when you look at that jump that you made from going 212 to 209 low 209 um, that seems crazy but like you're still developing as a runner and now here you are going into olympic year with another year under your belt like that's pretty exciting yeah and i I mean i sure hope there's still more to gain that'd be that'd be huge but um yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm very excited, very optimistic about the Olympic year. And I am I feel like we're in a good spot, not only physically, but also like situationally, I feel very comfortable with the people around me and mm-hmm. with what, like the routines we've carved out. And, um, you know, Ben in particular, but we've also got a really good weight training staff and um, Wes and AJ Gregg, who are our strength coaches and chiros and good massage therapists. So I feel very, very prepared, I guess, for the next... Right six or seven months or whatever it is to the trials. So your big coming out party was Boston. I Mm -hmm. mean, you'd already, you'd done, you distinguished yourself in New York and in Frankfurt. Um, What did you get in? You got seventh in New York, ran 212, and then you ran Frankfurt the year before that and got ninth, also running 212. So, you know, in the the marathon world, people were taking notice and certainly knew who you were, but uh, America learned to embrace you in Boston. (laughs) You know, there's- America being very, very niche America. Well, I mean, listen, you know, a lot of people watch the Boston Marathon who don't know that much about elite marathon running. And when you took the lead and they're like, who's this guy, you know, suddenly, you're uh, you're the topic of conversation. So let's spend a little time talking about Boston. Sure. Um, I mean, because that was such a such an extraordinary, incredible performance. Um, and I've heard you say going into that that you knew you were 
capable of going under 210 and, and you had a lot of confidence going into it. Um, but that's different from being in the mix of it and, and sort of leading the race at, at certain points. Like, how do you think about that looking back on it now? Because the, the interviews that I listened to and read were right after that. And I would imagine that, you know, that experience is settled in and maybe you have a little bit more perspective on it now. Yeah, definitely. Um, one thing I, I don't think I did a good job of communicating immediately after the race was, like, when I led, I was kind of shocked and I, not shocked, I took a, mo- took a moment to, like, appreciate it. I was like, oh, my God, I'm leading uh-huh. the Boston Marathon. Yeah. Like, I took a moment to let that soak in and be like, this is such an amazing experience. But it's not like I went to the lead just to say that. Like I went to the lead a number of times. I'm going to get my TV time now. Yeah. I went to the lead with a purpose and with the goal of like dropping people and making people hurt and with like an agenda initiative to get up to, to really push the pace. And I did. I mean, I took the lead at, for the first time seriously at like 16 miles Mm -hmm. and I was in and out of the lead until like 22. And when I took the lead at 16, there was a group of probably 25 people. And when I got over the top of Heartbreak Hill at 21, there was eight. So right. I, I don't think I communicated the fact that I, I really pushed. I didn't just go to the lead to be there. There was a yeah. point. Um, and I mean, at this point after the race, I've kind of like let that sink in where it's like, yeah, I'm really strong. Like I can just kind of do that and feel really comfortable up front as opposed to getting up there and being really nervous and just right, kind like of freaking out. out. Yeah, right. like, yeah. Like, do I really belong up here? Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe I've overextended myself. Absolutely. Well, my sense from reading up on this is that you were, it, 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 and for the uninitiated, if you were watching it, you'd think you're putting in these surges trying to you know, you know, know, create a lead or whatever, but you were kind of sticking to your own plan of what you wanted to do. And the surges and the regressions were really a reflection of what the pack was doing, yeah, um, and not really what you were doing. Yeah, especially going up the the Newton Hills. So mm-hmm. when you t- you take a right turn at seventeen and a half miles, and that's when the hills like really start. And um, the favorites and leaders they would push really hard on the uphills, and there are these kind of respites in between the hills where it was unclear whether they were catching their breath or mm-hmm. whether they just wanted to slow it down for a different reason. And I would let myself slip to the back of the group when they were running hard up the hill. And then when we'd get over the top of the hill and we'd have the flat section, I would just keep running the same rhythm. So I'd pick it up in pace because we were running flat or downhill. But I would find myself going back to the front and really dragging these people along. Mm -hmm. And that was mostly just me trying to do the best thing for me. It wasn't like a huge tactical move to try to break things open. It was just like the best way for me to get from here to the top of these hills is to run one really hard, even pace. Right. One of the things you've talked about is the difference between good and fast. Like there's there's running fast, but there's also running good, which is more about racing, mm-hmm. right? Like how do you put in a good performance amongst the group? Um, and so when you're heading into Boston, you have a race plan. This is what you know what I think I can execute. You've got it all locked in, but then you're in the pack and things are happening and you've got to adjust to what other people are doing. Like how much of that plays into spontaneous adjustments that you're making? Or are you just like, I'm running my thing. Like I'm not paying attention to any of these people. Like, are you reactive or responsive or are you just within yourself? I think 
at my best in Boston, I was, I was within myself mm -hmm. and not worrying about the pace. I mean, I didn't take a split the whole race, like a uh, mile split. The only way I was keeping track of how fast we were running was I'd look at the clock every mile and I would just take a note how many seconds under five minute pace we were. Uh -huh. And then once we got to the hills at like 16, I stopped looking at the clock completely until 25 or but something. But you probably know yourself well enough to know like, you know, like, oh, that was a bit, you, you probably yeah. knew your pace just intuitively. Yeah, mostly you know. the feel of it. I yeah. wouldn't say I had like a really firm grasp on what the number was, but mm -hmm. I did know what it was supposed to feel like. And there was a couple parts in the race where um, the pack would surge and I would kind of get left behind, like most notably from like 12 to 14. There was this big surge in the group and all of a sudden I was like 20 seconds back. Mm -hmm. And at that point I was thinking, I, was, I wasn't within myself. I was thinking a lot about the pace. I was thinking a lot about the numbers. I was thinking a lot about the people who were running away from me. And that was my worst stretch of the race. And once we kind of got to this big downhill and I was like, okay, just letting my legs flow now, I'm gonna let it turn over. I kind of got into this, I guess you would call it like flow state where things didn't really hurt. And I was just kind of, my legs were moving without me really having to push them. Mm -hmm. That was my best stretch in the race was after I got out of my own head and mm -hmm. got out of my own way and just let myself go do what I felt like I could do. Yeah, well, that takes a level of maturity. You know, it would be easier to just freak out and go, oh my God, like I gotta, I gotta pick it up or I'm gonna lose contact with the group, right? And get outside of what, you know, what your plan is because you're reacting. Yeah, I'm, I hope so. I yeah. hope I was mature. Yeah. Um, for such a young man. Yeah, I only, mean. Who only had done two, two other marathons up to that point. Yeah. But that's a tribute to, to you and like, you know, the work that you did with your coach and the confidence that you had going into the, going into the race. Um, how much, like, what, what is going on? Like, when you're part of that pack, like, are people talking to each other? Like, is there jockeying? Like, what is the strategy that you kind of witness unfolding amongst the leaders, like I think it's interesting for you know most people that are listening to this are casual runners mm -hmm. at best. You know, I think everyone would be super interested in knowing like what is it what is it like? Like, are people talking shit to each other? Are they like get out of my way? Or is there any of that going on? Or um, what does it feel like? There's not a ton of talking shit. Occasionally, mm -hmm. like people will like say if it's a really crowded pack, there'll be some bumping, right? And then there'll be some chirping. People don't necessarily care for that. It's a huge wide road. You don't need to be all over each other, right? There's some etiquette, right? Yeah. Like give people some birth. Mm -hmm. But I mean, for the most part, there are little like little mind games you can see people playing. Like if you've got a good tangent and someone's coming up on the inside, you can kind of squeeze them out. And, mm -hmm. um, but for me, I try to just stay out of all of that. I just I don't want to. I don't need to worry about anyone else. Mm -hmm. I just want to do the best that I can do. And the more I get sucked into what other people are doing, the worse the end result ends up yeah. being, I, I think. There was one point where you took like, you went way wide of the group. I can't remember what that was. Like you had a better, you had a better like angle on the course mm -hmm. than everyone else. Um, and you were just kind of completely separated from everyone. Yeah, that happens kind of quite a bit. For whatever reason, I mean, part of it is that, um, when you live in America, you, it's easy to get to Boston. So uh -huh. most of us who had seen live in America saw the course at some point. But for whatever reason, the East Africans generally aren't great at running tangents, whether it's that they haven't seen the course before or that they just don't know where, they're, where the race is going or whatever. 
they'll almost always be on the wrong side of the road or they'll stay in the middle of the road when a turn's coming up. <laughs> and it's kind of, it's <laughs> almost baffling. Funny. Like some of these guys uh-huh. in the race have run Boston like six or seven times. Uh-huh. And it's like, we're coming up to a big right-hand turn, guys. Like right. I, and they're this way is obviously the, <laughs> the right side. You obviously want to uh-huh. be over here. Um, so I think it was mostly like, I just had faith that I knew where I was going and I knew what the yeah. best plan was. Yeah. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. So at some point, so you take the, like you're, you're up in the front and the, the, the group's getting smaller and smaller. 
you take the lead. What is it like at at, at around like nineteen or twenty or something like yeah, that? Yeah, there are a couple of spots where uh-huh. I got in the front. Yeah, and at that point, you must be thinking. I mean, you're a strong finisher, right? Like, yeah, I've been closing workouts really well. Completely just bust a move here and mm-hmm. break away. Like these people aren't really expecting me to do anything like that. Um, but that ended up not being the case, right? So walk me through like how that last part of the race went. Yeah, I think at like 19 was when the group was really down to like eight people. Uh And I was kind of sitting on the back going up like the last of the Newton Hills Heartbreak Hill. And, you know, you mentioned before I was bib number 28 and at Boston they they go by PR. So I had 28, the 28th Mm -hmm. fastest PR, 212. There were 29 men in the the Mm -hmm. elite field. So on paper, I should have, been down there and up ahead of me is like two, four, seven, eight. Right. Um, and I remember thinking like the slowest guy in this group has run six minutes faster than me over uh-huh. the course of a marathon. And then I was kind of like, you know what? It doesn't matter right now. Uh, there's nothing I can do about that at this moment. Um, and as we got up the very last hill, just like I had at every other hill, I got over the top and I, I accelerated off the crest of the hill. And all of a sudden I found myself in the front and for like a split second I was like, you know, if I go really, really hard right now, maybe they'll kind of let me go. Maybe they'll think like we can pull them back later mm-hmm. and this is my best shot. And I pushed pretty hard for like 50 or 60 meters and they came right with me. It was too late. They were going to be covering everything. And so we get to um, 22 miles, which is kind of a hard mile. And you take a left turn at Cleveland Circle. You're going down Beacon Street now. And right as we ter- take that turn, like seven guys start running way faster than I'm capable of running. Yeah. Like they just are hammering. This is like your your uh, Dennis Christopher moment in Breaking Away. Oh yeah, you know it's yeah. like I'm just vision, you know, envisioning that scene where all the Italians roll up and you know he's by himself and they you know they th- they put the the pump in his spokes and he goes down. Yeah, that was one of my big quips yeah. was with that movie. It was like how did they how did he even get up with these guys? They uh-huh. had a gap. They should have just used team tactics, stayed right. away. But um. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Other than the bike spoke in the wheels, it was basically the same thing. Yeah. It was like they just started cranking and I just couldn't hang. And for like maybe 30 seconds, I threw myself a little pity party where it's like, shit, I'm not good enough today. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to be able to hang. Um, like, I ran 22 great miles and I was like, no, you know what? Like, fuck that. Like, I'm having a great day today. Like, yeah. we're getting focused again. And it hurt a lot. Like, I was in a ton of pain. But if I, when I just, got really, really dialed in and just making it to the next mile marker, getting next to the next K, I could kind of get back into that rhythm. And I went back to like my power phrases, the stuff that I'd been doing every time it got really hard in practice, which was like this one Jay-Z song that I like is fuck with me, you know, I got it. So I kept saying that over, over in my head uh-huh. and kept reminding myself to just keep the pedal down, keep the pedal down. And eventually I caught up to seventh place, moved into seventh and got up the there's like a tiny little hill leading into 25 at um, Boston. At 25 miles, it feels like a freaking mountain. Right. It feels awful. Um, and I looked at the clock and I saw one mile to go. I needed like a 450 to break 209. And I was like, all right, we're going for it. Mm-hmm. And I pushed basically as hard as I could for like 600 meters. And then you do this little underpass um, and pushed down it, started going up it, and my legs just went. They just weren't, mm. just like I got kicked in the nuts. And, uh, get up to the top of the underpass, right on Hereford, little bit of uphill left on Boylston and the Union got like 600 yards. And I still thought maybe I got a shot. So I was Right, because still... you can see that finish line from quite a distance, yeah. right? It probably was still reading like 207 or something. Yeah, 
and so I was just hammering. I was still like, I was like, I'm going to go deeper. I can go deeper. Like keep pushing yourself, keep pushing yourself. You can take more pain. You can take more pain. And it wasn't until like maybe 60 or 70 yards when it's like, I'm not going to, not going to go under 209. I'm not uh-huh. going to catch anyone. And at that point I kind of let myself really enjoy the last finish. Like I got to point to yeah. the crowd. I saw a couple friends in the stands and I pointed to the other side and finally got across the line. And then, um, yeah, then, 209.09. Yeah, 209.09. The wall of sound has to be unbelievable. It's incredible. Final stretch. Yeah, I mean, I've I went to Boston for they've got some shorter races um, that weekend, but the year before when it was just pouring down rain and it was really loud then. So the next year when we had really nice weather, I, I couldn't believe it. You come out of the little tunnel and you turn right on Hereford and it's just. It's like a rock concert. Mm. Yeah. Or it feels like a rock concert. Yeah. Yeah. And you are the rock star. That's yeah. 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 Hopefully you're still rocking <laughs> yeah. 26 miles in. And that morning it was pouring rain, right? It was looking yeah. like it wasn't going to be a nice day. Yeah. And I was looking forward to that. Yeah. I wanted the worst weather possible. Uh-huh. I remember getting on the bus at, <laughs> you get on the bus to Boston at like 5.50 in the morning or something. Uh-huh. And I remember texting my girlfriend like, it's raining so hard. Like, this is so awesome. I can't wait to get into this race. <laughs> and... um both unfortunately and fortunately, it became super, super nice all of a sudden, mm-hmm. um, basically like 30 minutes before the race started. It was just a perfect day. What are the mindset tactics that you use? I mean, you talked about the Jay-Z song and like, what are, what are the things that you kind of rely upon to, you know, meet those obstacles and those barriers and push through, you know, the pain? Um, I would say the biggest thing is like meditation practice. I've been practicing for the better like part of two years. Um, and I didn't start pra- meditating for running by any means, but it was I think- an- anxiety brought you into that, right? It was, yeah. It was a way to combat anxiety and sort of just deal with it in a more healthy way. But I think once you practice it for long enough, it kind of becomes, it kind of starts to permeate other parts of your life. And um, so being present and in particular, like the strategy of noting where you just, when you realize you're distracted, you just say that's thinking and you can get back into Mm -hmm. focus a little bit more as opposed to like ruminating on the fact that you're thinking and then you're pissed off that you're distracted and that's just all more thinking. So if you can just note it and let it go, um, I think that's one of the more helpful, um, what is the, what is the daily practice of that look like for you specifically? I just meditate 15 minutes in the morning and then on good days I get in like another 10 in the, in the evening. Do you have a specific like, practice you use an app yeah i use headspace oh you do Mm -hmm. yeah 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 cool and then like throughout the day like are you does that give you like that extra level of awareness when you're when your mind drifts to like bring it back yeah i would say um i could be more focused in my general life Uh um and i try to be mindful but uh i would say the times when i feel like the most at ease and the most mindful are when I'm outside, whether that's running or walking the dog or whatever, it's yeah. just, for whatever reason, being outside helps a lot. Well, running will definitely bring you yeah. into the present, right? Yeah. But I would imagine your mind still wanders, so you can you're always in that when you're racing specifically or training, like mm-hmm. to be always bringing it back to like what's happening in the moment. Yeah, and I don't, you know, I don't train with music. I don't ever mm-hmm. listen to podcasts when I run. It's just me and my thoughts. And how dare you? I know. I'm sorry, Rich. <laughs> I listen to you when I stretch. This interview is over. Yeah. <laughs> I listen to you when I stretch and when I drive. Uh-huh. Other, it's all your podcasts. I listen to them all. <laughs> all the time. Yeah, every single day it's one. I've <laughs> listened to the Cop- Brian Koppelman <laughs> yeah. one seven times, Rich. Okay. Um, I feel better now. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. We can keep going. Uh, yeah, and I think 
just the more you can practice having sort of like a quiet mind, the better, mm -hmm. whether that's formal meditation practice or like taking 60 meters on a run and just being like, you right. know what, I'm just going to be really still until I get back, get past that tree. Or when you get to like a turnaround point, just taking five seconds and mm -hmm. feeling your feet on the ground or feeling a wind on your face or appreciating the scenery. Do you break it down into like when you're really in the pain cave, like, mm -hmm. okay, I just need to get right up to that next tree or that next street lamp, or I'm just going to focus on catching that one guy who's right in front of me. Like, do you, do you, do you like try to deconstruct it and break it down into tiny little, you know, bite-sized pieces? No, I just let it all in. You do? Yeah. I just uh -huh. say I can take more. That's uh -huh. the, what I remind myself. It's like, yeah. I can go deeper. I can take more. This is your this is your superpower, right? Like you're you have you have a great amount of talent, but this ability to suffer and to show up like late in the race, like that seems like these seem to be your strengths. Yeah, I is think that, so. Is that accurate? Mm -hmm. You think? Yeah, endure mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah, yeah. Which isn't the coolest talent. Like it would be right. way cooler if I could just like be really smooth and have the same results without hurting so badly. But yeah, um, but being able to suffer and endure a lot amongst the group of people who know how to do that better than anyone is, I would say that that's a good distinguishing uh, talent to have. Yeah, I'm like, as, um, as shitty as it is to be like, yeah, I can endure a lot of pain uh -huh. um, and actually having to endure it, um, I'm grateful that I get that opportunity. And I kind of look forward to it now. Yeah. What do you think is your weakness or what's the thing that you, you find yourself having to work on the most? Um, I'm probably not as fluid as most people physically. And then I think mentally I, I'm very solid, but I could come to practice with more enthusiasm some days, particularly uh -huh. in like really hard training when the workout isn't going to be that hard and you don't have to get amped for it. Like I, sometimes I, I come pretty flat. Yeah. And that's something I could do a better job at. Uh-huh. I'm aware of that. Does Ben remind you of that? Uh no, he hasn't had to. Usually yeah. I realize I'm <laughs> kind of being a drag ass uh -huh. uh, on the warm-up when I'm pissed off that I have to do it as opposed to like really grateful and really excited for the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And and are most of your workouts with teammates or do you do solo training training? Like what does it look like for you? Like what's take me through like a, a week of training or what, a typical day? Um, yeah, I mean, most of our workouts are with people. So uh -huh. a typical day is like we meet at 8.30, go for a run, and whether that's an easy run or a workout, usually we're with a group. Before Boston, since I was the only one doing Boston, and Boston's like really specific, um, I wasn't really on the same schedule with anyone. I was doing a lot of stuff alone. Um, but usually, a lot of times, at the very least, I would be working out in the same place as people so we could warm up together and cool down, and uh -huh. it wouldn't be quite so lonely. Um, and... After the run, you finish the run at 10, 11 o'clock, go home, usually do my like rehab, then take a nap usually. And then in the evening, we go back out for four miles and that's usually on my own. And that's when I'll take the dog out and we'll run together. Uh -huh. And then afterwards, um, sometimes get in the sauna, sometimes do stretching and core. Twice a week, we go to the weight room. I think it's, you know. It's pretty basic. Yeah, pretty basic. Right? Yeah. And how much of it is on the track versus on trails or roads? I would prefer to never get on the track. Uh -huh. I just, I don't care for it. My body doesn't handle it that well. It's kind of boring. Um, I would prefer to go. We have this really nice There's road. certain workouts that are kind yeah. of appropriate for that, right? Yeah, there are workouts that are, that make more sense on the track. I would always rather be on the road though. Uh -huh. um, but almost all of our easy running is on dirt roads. Um, we're lucky in Flagstaff to be 
um, surrounded by either national forest or reservation. So yeah. there, there's a lot of forest service roads um, for us to run on, which is really fun. Um, and then we're also lucky to have like a few really good road loops and um, Lake Mary Road is where we do most of our runs, which is like, I think the road goes like 60 or 70 miles, but we have a 16 mile section that's marked every quarter mile. Mm-hmm. So we do a ton of workouts on that. Mm. One of the things that that distinguishes you from you know people in your in your subculture is how transparent you've been with all of your training in addition to writing you know this book inside a marathon where you literally like this is what I did every single yep. day like to the minutest detail um, you share all your workouts on Strava um, you know you write about it you make videos like you're doing a lot of things to be a complete open book about how you're preparing. And it's one thing for an amateur athlete to do that. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people use Strava to get the added, the sort of accountability with their friends, et cetera. Um, but you don't see that many um, elite athletes at their prime sharing their workouts. Like you'll see people after they retire and then they're happy to do it. But there's this sense like, well, I don't want to, you know, let people know where I'm at specifically because that might give them a competitive advantage. So walk me through the decision of like being so open about it and like why you, why, why that's important to you. Um, part of our, our groups, the Hoka NAZ Elite, like mission statement is to share every part of the journey. So part of it is that I'm trying to do as good of a job and my job mm. as possible and live up to my boss's standards. And as a brand ambassador. That's right, yeah. yes. Uh-huh. And um, do as well as I can in representing Hoka on mm-hmm. um, Part of it is also kind of like that sort of creative um, stimulation. Like it's fun to think of fun, like interesting, clever ways to share your training. And on Strava, I don't, participate socially really i just i put it out you there put it out, right um just because i found like Do you read the comments occasionally uh-huh. sometimes um but it, like there's never any i've never had a, like a constructive conversation or anything on strava <laughs> people will either be they'll either believe you did it or they'll uh-huh. say that's wrong the wrong activity type or they'll say it's bad gps data and so i just leave it be so uh-huh. i just like all right this is what it was this is what i did um so you know that's kind of changed a little bit but I think it's like it's interesting and fun and like kind of creatively difficult to share mm-hmm. your training in a way that's not like a training log. Like I know that inside a marathon is in its most basic form, it was always going to be a training log. But we were hoping it was more like a journal, which is more fun and interesting mm-hmm. and harder, I think. So part of it is being a brand ambassador. Part of it is is um, kind of trying to be creative and use your brain a little bit as yeah. opposed to just just running and like posting a Ernest Hemingway quote on Twitter. Like there's right. only so many times you can do that before even yourself gets bored. Well, it takes a little bit of confidence to say like, I don't care whether you see what I'm doing or not because yeah. I'm still gonna you know do it. And, and you know, you still have to do the work, mm-hmm. right? Um, one of the things that's interesting in, in scrolling through it though is, 
you know, I think a lot of people feel this pressure on Strava, like every workout has to be super epic. And, you know, if their pace isn't good, they won't upload it or whatever. And there's a lot of like workouts where it's like, you're running seven minute pace. It's like, it's yeah, just here's six miles, yeah. eight miles. It's like, well, you know, a lot of people can do that, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's really cool because it shows people the reality of preparing for a marathon, which is there is a lot of like, basically just like casual running that gets yeah. you know built into it yeah absolutely and i guess part it is then you'll throw down some crazy workout that is that is, fun. Too, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is fun yeah that is fun um yeah and also i guess to your previous point like in terms of my competitors it's like i don't really care if they see what they're doing because mm -hmm. If they see what I'm doing, because a they're not going to change it. Like mm -hmm. I would think less of somebody. Do you if follow like, some of those people? Like, I don't, are any is anyone else doing this? I don't know that anyone else really yeah. does it. So I would. Mm -hmm. uh, and most of them are my friends, so I would follow them. Right. That's my. But it wouldn't change what you were doing. Like it wouldn't. No. Yeah, of course. I not. would think less yeah. of somebody if they were like had a whole plan for a marathon laid out, and then they saw a workout I did, and they're like, "Oh, I know, actually, I want to do that." Right. And frankly, like. That would not be smart. No, and I've never had a marathon segment that went 100% smoothly. Like, if you want to read inside a marathon and copy everything that I did, it's like, okay, I bombed a couple workouts. Mm -hmm. Why don't you just blow up in a few workouts there? It's not like a, it's not like an addition problem. It's more like, um, like a a soup or a recipe. Like, yeah. you've got to put a little bit here and put a little bit there, and maybe the something isn't ripe or something isn't right, and you have to adjust. Um, so I don't really think. I don't think I've ever, anyone has ever said, saw, okay, that's what they're doing. We need to do that and then beat me. Right. Yeah. Well, one of the things in, in Inside a Marathon that I think is so interesting, I mean, really, you know, you can characterize it as a, as a, as a, as journals or as a travel log, but I look at, at it as a case study in the coach athlete relationship. Like yeah. There's it's a, a lot deep of that. dive into how that works. And, it's very inside baseball. Like if you're training for a marathon, like read this book, it will walk you through. You'll learn so much about how to do that. But I think every coach should read it because it's really about like how the coach responds to the athlete and what that relation, the, the, the dynamic nature of that relationship. And there's that one part in particular where you're all keyed up for this workout. I think it was two times six miles or whatever. And Ben decides to discard it. And there's a whole, you know, kind of discussion about that. Um, and it's super interesting to see just how this is in a, a constantly evolving thing. It's not like, here's your plan, this is what yeah. we're doing. You know, it's like, how are you feeling today? Like all these micro adjustments that are happening all the time and the communication that's required uh, on behalf of both the athlete and the coach to really produce the result that you're both looking for. Yeah, and Ben does a great job of sharing that in the book. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of see, I guess there's like two instances one where I don't give him a lot of information about how shitty I'm feeling. And it was like early in the book, kind of in the summer, I'm just feeling really bad, bomb a workout, feel like dog shit in a, a easy workout that should have been pretty easy. And then later in the segment when I'm telling him, it's like, dude, I'm like tired, I'm beat right now. Then we actually make a decision um, to, to change a workout. And Ben is clued in. It's kind of, it's small, but you can see kind of the, negative side of maybe not communicating enough with your coach is when I was feeling really tired and terrible and he was, I didn't really tell him because I thought this is my job. I'm just supposed right. to do what I'm told. Um, but he knows. Yeah. He, I mean, but I should have been more, um, I should have been more, yeah, more yeah. open about how shitty I was feeling, but maybe uh -huh. I was 
maybe I was nervous to tell him that I was feeling shitty or maybe I didn't want to tell him or whatever it was. But, um, yeah, a couple of times in the summer when I was, I should have been more open. Right. Um, for the, for the kind of uninitiated, it's interesting. Like there's so much heat around this one workout. It's like, dude, it's just one workout. Right. But there are these, like you're doing a ton of running, but there are these, these particular workouts that pop up from time to time at, you know, at, 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 at these determined, you know, interval points that are super important in your build and in your prep mm-hmm. that you kind of like, you, you just got to put in, right? So although it was just one workout, it was like a super important one. Yeah, I mean, I still ran great in New York. Like yeah. we put a ton <laughs> yeah. of importance on it, uh-huh. but ultimately like one workout didn't make or break the segment right. um, any more than any other workout did. You know, yeah. I could have there could have any number of those workouts I could have bombed. And I dropped out of what I would consider kind of an important workout as well. And we just canceled another mm-hmm. one. So um, you could make the case that like, as long as you just do enough, it'll be fine um, after reading the book as well. I think all the importance is more like a projection as opposed to sort of actual scientific right. reality. Right, 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 right. After working with Ben for a couple of years now, what have you learned about what makes a great coach? Like what's the difference between a, a great coach or a great coach athlete relationship um, versus you know maybe some other types of things that you've seen over the years? I think, I don't, nece- I don't think this at all applies to just coach athlete, but I think it's probably um, trust and openness. Like the more information I can give Ben in a cohesive way is gonna let him make better decisions. Mm-hmm. And it's also, I have to trust him to make good decisions as well. Like he just two weeks ago, we pulled out of a race that I was really looking forward to because I got a little bit of flu-like virus earlier in the week and um, I just didn't look good, but I still wanted to go race. And Ben said, that's a bad idea, I think. Mm-hmm. And I just, I have to trust him on that yeah. because if I don't trust him, like what's the point of even having right. a coach? Have you ever gone to loggerheads with him though? What do you mean? Like had a conflict where you felt really strongly about doing something and he disagreed? Um, no, I don't think so. I think if we ever did that, it would be like, why do I even, why am I even working with Ben if I'm just going, if we're just butting heads all the time? I really do trust him to make good decisions. And at some point, like his record has to speak for himself. Like we've run well at three marathons, myself and him. Um, uh, my teammate Kellen Taylor has run 224. Um, she ran 226 again this year. We've had countless top 15s at world marathon majors. Like he knows what he's talking about. Like I don't. Yeah. It would be pretty arrogant of me to presume that I can just make a better decision than him mm-hmm. when really, like, he's paid to make good decisions and he's done a good job of it for so long that uh, it would be pretty silly to be like, yeah, yeah you know what, I know better actually. <laughs> but at some point, as you be as you get more and more experience, you 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 learn to know yourself very well, right? Like mm-hmm. and. I, I would imagine there's a point at which, like, you know what you need, or you feel you're going to start to feel more strongly about this, that, or the other thing. And there's a, there's a, there's sort of a taking ownership thing that takes place, right? And and learning how to like navigate that with the coach relationship, I would imagine, like you see super elite experienced athletes who you know have disagreements with their coaches, and maybe that's healthy, you know, or mm-hmm. depends on the coach and the athlete, obviously, but. Um, it's, it's, it is interesting. Like you're really like, you just let him do his thing. Yeah. 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 And he lets me do my thing. Like, right. He's not, there are a lot of times have been a lot of times where I've been feeling really good in a workout, like particularly my biggest one before Boston, we did just 16 miles steady 
and I was feeling really, really good. And I really, really pushed. And in general, he would be like, okay, like, let's not go to the well today. Like, let's not leave the race out here. But he trusted me to feel that I was feeling really good and Uh to make a good decision. Um, so he trusts me as well. And there, I do have a little bit of autonomy, but for the most part, like, I just want to do what I'm told. I just Uh like, I like seeing what's on the paper and I don't want to have the stress of like trying to figure it out. I just want Ben, I just trust Ben enough to where it's like, look, if I do what Ben says and I do it really well, in the end result, you'll be where you I'll be where be. I need to be. Yeah, cool. What do you think are the the defining qualities of like the ultimate marathon runner? Like, what do you, what do you have to have in order to succeed at your level at marathon running? Um, I mean, I think physically you have to be very durable, and you have to get really, really good at running marathon pace. I think uh-huh. that's the thing that most people probably mess up they probably do the wrong indicator workouts so their workouts they'll do a workout that is a really good indicator for running a half marathon or running a 10k on the track and they'll be like look how fast i ran in this it's like that's six by mile isn't the same yeah so i think physically it's being very durable and getting really really good at running about the pace you'll be running in the Mm -hmm. marathon Mm -hmm. um and that just doesn't mean just getting really good at knowing what the effort is but it means getting really, really efficient, trying to not go, not burn too many calories too fast, being good at replacing them. Um, and then I think mentally, I think it's important to ex- expect to feel bad, to let it in. Like you have to make peace with the fact that this is really going to hurt. There's no way that this won't be excruciating unless you're just out there jogging. Yeah. Um, and I think the sooner you make peace with that, the sooner like the easier it is when it comes, you're expecting it, you're looking forward to it as opposed to like worrying about the last four miles and dreading them. That's just going to make them worse. I would imagine your mindfulness practices and your mindset techniques have helped you with that. Like to just embrace, like this is, this is what it is. Like Mm -hmm. bring it on as opposed to being afraid of, of, of it happening down the line. Like, Oh, in two more miles, I'm really going to feel it. Yeah. And when it does come, letting it in, like it's there, it's coming along for the ride. Uh-huh. There's no way the pain isn't going to hurt, but you can't let it be the one that gets to make the decisions. You have to be right. the one in charge. And if you let it in, if you acknowledge that it's going to be there, then you got to be in charge of the pain and it doesn't get to hold you back. Maybe it keeps coming. Maybe it keeps coming. Maybe it hurts a ton. But if you stay in front of it in terms of like, I'm just going to let this really hurt, um, I think that's much more healthy than just fearing it and letting it be the Uh, boss. Right. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof, with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. One of my favorite questions that I like to ask uh, 
elite athletes like yourself. Like one of the things that's that's unique about marathon running is you go to these races and you compete and all the everyone all the you know the hoi polloi like everybody gets to compete at the same time. What have you seen um, amateur runners do wrong? Like where you're like, Ugh, what is that guy doing? Come on, you know, like you know, there's always these stories like the day before the race, they're yeah. out doing tempo runs on the course or you know things like that. Like, what do you see all the time that you and your buddies are like? Don't they know that they should yeah. do that one thing? <laughs> I would say trying something brand new the day before the race. Uh-huh. It's like. Especially at these big races totally like New York or Boston, pair of shoes yeah. Or, like, yeah. oh yeah, I just got these new socks. <laughs> they're supposed to be better. Uh-huh. Um, like going to the expo to buy shoes. Like you didn't come with a pair of shoes, right? Um, and then spending all day on their feet. And it's like, would you do this if you had a workout tomorrow? Or the con- conversely, um, people who just spend the whole weekend in the hotel room. It's like you are in a big city. Like go enjoy yourself a little bit. Just uh-huh. have well, like, what would you do the day before a workout? You might go for a short run and go for a walk and go grab breakfast or something like that. Do the same thing. It's fine. Like uh-huh. you people, I guess the thing that I see people do wrong is make these races into like this huge, like special thing that is not the same as how they prepared. Right. It's like, no, you're, you're ready. You're prepared. Do the same thing you would have done normally. Like this doesn't have to be, you don't have to get out of your rhythm just because now you're in Boylston, you know? But there's all this second guessing and yeah. last minute adjustments. And I think that comes from fear or insecurity for the yeah. most part. I think so. Yeah. I think just I think people probably get in their own way a little bit too much mm-hmm. as opposed to just, you know what? I'm here in Boyle, uh, in Boston. I wanna appreciate I wanna have a little bit of fun this weekend. I wanna take in the marathon atmosphere. But it's like you've done this a ton of times, you know? You've if you've trained well you should kind of know what's coming. Right. And if you qualified for Boston, yeah. you, know, you kind of know what to do. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Just get out of your own way. Just uh-huh. go have go out there and have fun. You know, it's supposed to be fun. Yeah. You don't have to worry about it. Don't have to stress about it. And frankly, like people put all this pressure on themselves and really it's not like that important. Like I know that even for me, like I know this is my job and this is how I make money. But if I go out in the trials and like I get sixth or I run three hours or something like that, it's like the people who love me are still going to love me. Uh-huh. The people, my friends are still going to be my <laughs> friends. Like yeah. I'm a hundred percent sure my girlfriend won't dump me if I run bad at the trials. Mm-hmm. Um, and if all the, if I, I'm, so it's really, I'm free to take big chances. I'm free to go out there and just run as hard as I can. And whatever those results are, will be fine because the things that are really important, the people that I care about will still be there. Right. Uh, you got yourself into like a little bit of hot water when you said this thing of like uh, if you were given the choice of of running under two hours or giving up burritos for yeah. the rest of your life that you would uh, you would you would stick with the burritos, and that caused a lot of discussion. Yeah, I mean, about I made your a, commitment yeah, to I'm, the sport. I made a joke. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, people like you know on these forums, you know, yeah. they take this stuff seriously. Yeah, I mean, I don't like. I don't know what else you want me to do. Yeah. Like, well, I do you just, want to hear I'm like, like, I'm like, look, I'm li- I'm living my life. Like, yeah. my happiness is important. And I like speaking of like making a joke. I love like in the beginning of the book, you cut you open it up by saying, "I've always wanted to be the subject of a book or a documentary." And yeah. you go on to this kind of like hilariously like self mocking narcissistic you know like rant that is I thought was hilarious. Like, Thank you. You know, and uh, but I think what I I I hear the same tone in that in the joke that you made. Yeah, you know? I try not to take myself too right. seriously <laughs> yeah. by any means. Like, 
I know that the reason I have a platform is pretty stupid. Like uh-huh. I can run pretty fast. I'm not changing the world or like writing important books or anything like that. Like I'm a guy who can put one foot in front of the other pretty quickly for a long period of time. Like right. I should have some fun and I should make fun of myself a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> um, what do you make of all the, like we're in an interesting time in running right now. Like there's some really cool kind of storytelling happening and in, in, in the running world, like outside of just elite marathoning has really exploded with the expansion of ultra running and like the breaking two project and, and, you know, you see people crossing over from like, like what Walmsley's doing, like, you know, going from um, Western States and, you know, half marathon and marathon and all that kind of stuff. Like, how do you think about how you, you, you know, as somebody who's into movies, who's into storytelling, who's written a book, like, how do you think about storytelling and running and how you connect with the public about what it is that you do? Um. Yeah, and I would extend the storytelling like explosion kind of to cycling as well. And I think in running, we're, we're behind cycling. We can do a better job. Um, you see especially this Education First team. They've got sending people to these alternative races like the Dirty Kanza, Leadville 100. Uh-huh. Um, and I think one of the huge powers in that in running is um, there's a lot of ways now to have fun with it. You see these unsanctioned races like the Speed Project where there's just unsanctioned 340 mile race. And because these things exist and we're at a place, especially with social media and Twitter and Instagram, there's um, a medium for people to share these stories really easily and really accessibly. You don't need like multi-million dollar budgets and you don't need to put this out on HBO or at Sundance. Like you can just make it and then put it on the internet. Um, I think the, the storytellers have done a really good job of finding these niches of people who are just having fun. And we in the elite world need to take a cue from them, the storytellers in who are sh- sharing documentaries about the Speed Project or Barkley Marathons right. or, um, and figure out ways to make what we're doing interesting and fun. Um, and I think there are some, there are some interesting or some good examples of that. Uh, I hope Inside a Marathon is one of them. You know, we really tried hard and have uh, worked really hard to make something that we're proud of. But I think a lot of it comes down to initiative. And I don't necessarily know if there's enough initiative, in my opinion, from the elite athletes to like go out and make it. You can't just wait and rely on outside sources to come and make the project. You have to no, you have to take tell responsibility your own yeah. for that yourself. And you've, you've been doing that. You make these mm-hmm. YouTube videos and all, like, I feel like you've really taken that mantle and, and, and embraced it. And I think it's, um, I think it's important as a professional athlete and as a sponsored athlete and brand ambassador, like this is part of your job now, right? To like storytell, mm-hmm. because I think it's easy for the general public to look at somebody like yourself or, or a Shalane or a Dez and just be like, I can't relate to these people. Like they're just cyborgs. Um, but that's not the case. They're, you're all human beings mm-hmm. and you know, you're down at the coffee shop eating a burrito and working on a book and you're a human being and you have stories to tell. And there's a lot about who you are that's incredibly relatable. And the more that the general public can kind of connect with your journey, um, the more invested they are in your success and ultimately the more connected they are to the sport. Absolutely. I agree. I mean, I think you said it much yeah. better than I did previously there. So let's just take your answer. Yeah, well, you no, can dub I mean, it over my voice. And uh, if you could I write think, it out, I'll just restate yeah, it. I, I think it's, you know, in, 
you are seeing more and more of it. Like, like, uh, like when Jorgensen now is yep. doing this vlogging, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's really cool. And I, I just think more and more that's, that's part of the job, mm-hmm. you know, and I think more athlete, you're going to see more athletes doing it, but it's, it's like an added expense too. And it's yeah. like, who wants somebody following them around with a camera all the time? Like you're trying yeah. to, you know, be your very best. And yet when you, put this book together, there's incredible photographs from like all of your workouts. Mm-hmm. Obviously you had, you know, you had the, the a forethought to like have a photographer there for all of these sessions so that you could document it and share it. Yeah, um, well, we were very lucky that Ben's wife, Jen, uh-huh. she is a photographer. She, was a photog- okay. she also did all the formatting for it and put right. the book kind of together. She is very, very um, talented at that. So uh, we we're lucky to have that. I don't necessarily know if um, we would have had the budget necessarily to have someone yeah. do it if we had to pay you someone to come out every single time. You guys self-published it, yeah. too, right? And that mm-hmm. was kind of, like, we we never planned on, like, making this a financial thing. Like, we uh-huh. were just like, this would be really cool if it existed. Yeah. We would be into this. This will be fun to make. Um, and so it just kind of made the most sense. It's like, let's just do it exactly how we want to do it. And let's just put it out. And then put you it could put ourselves. it out. You could also put it out really quickly. Yeah. Like, so did it come out like right after New York? Yeah, I think we got it out by December twentieth. Wow. So that's really fast. New York was like November fourth, uh-huh. so less than two months, and that included writing the last three chapters, mm-hmm. um, all the edits, all the epilogues, picking the pictures, and then we had a little trouble finding like a printer that we could get it printed um, uh, in a for a reasonable price. Yeah, um, that's the thing. You have, yeah. to, you have to become this project manager and yeah. handle all this kind of stuff. Which I did not expect yeah. when we first started. I was just like, yeah, we're just gonna write and there'll be pictures and then it'll be out. It'll just, we'll just put it out and it'll be <laughs> you awesome. You have to pay it'll for be, the printing yeah. before anyone buys it. Yeah. yeah. And now, I mean, we've, since Boston, uh, we, we've added another chapter and we're gonna release a second edition coming out oh, soon. Cool. So um, it's still kind of turning into a little bit more of a living document and Ben yeah. and I both hope to do um, a future one, hopefully, if I make the Olympics. Then you um, do one for the Olympics. Yeah. This becomes a series. Absolutely. And mostly, I just want to do it so I can call it Inside a Marathon 2 Tokyo Swift. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, I am sure that won't be the official name, but that's what or, I will exclusively or, uh, refer to it as. Or Tokyo Draft. Tokyo Draft. That's a good one, too. one too. Yeah. yeah. One of the two. Um, yeah. So Depending upon how the race goes. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it's it was like really fun. And I think that's something that um, kind of people just think about how hard it's gonna be when they're thinking about telling a story. And it's actually really fun too. Mm -hmm. There's some stuff that I didn't care for, like editing isn't my favorite or like. um, I like all the footnotes. Yeah, the foot, but like writing the footnotes were my favorite. Uh That was, that was great. It was fun to come up with jokes. Yeah. Um, So much of the conversation over the last year or two um, when it comes to marathoning in America has been about the women. Like we've seen this resurgence of, of um, the prominence of American women marathoners, which has been really cool um, to see, but not a lot of talk about the dudes. And even in the coverage, it's like, it's about the women, which is mm-hmm. like an awesome thing. Like, yeah. But now here we are, we have you, you know, like you're on, you're, you're like, you've kind of emerged as this face and voice of American marathon running. Um, so, you know, how do you like take stock of American marathon running right now versus what it was a couple of years ago? Yeah. I mean, I think first of all, the coverage has deservedly been on the women. They've been competing at a higher level. Des and Shalane both have majors. You know, we've got big stars in Molly Huddle and Emily Sisson. Um, 
my teammate Kellen, Steph, Bruce, another one of my teammates, they've both been running at a level that is frankly higher internationally than what right. the men have been doing. So um, I'm not begrudging the fact that we weren't uh, we weren't covered as as heavily as the women. I think that's great. And um, I also think there's room to cover the women a lot more. There's still races every year that world marathon majors that don't start the women ahead. So the coverage of the women is almost unwatchable. They're just buried back behind. Um, you know, Chicago did it last year and we missed one of the great races ever. Mm -hmm. So I think there's still a lot of, um, opportunity to share women's running better. Um, that being said, I guess, like, I think American men's run marathoning has always been pretty good, I think, but the times haven't necessarily reflected that. That's kind of what I meant when I said there was this disconnect where everyone kind of thought good and fast were the same. And if you just want to take speed, we're the American men are, you know, this year so far, we've had two 209s, myself and Jared Ward. Mm -hmm. And that's about eight minutes slower than Elliot Kipchoge's right. world record. There's um, a whole battery of yeah. East Africans who, mm -hmm. you know, can make mincemeat of that. Yeah. But in terms of running well and placing high, I think American men's marathoning is actually doing pretty well and has been doing pretty well. We've finished high at Boston's, New York's. We've had people on the podium. We've been, if you want to say, like cha in championship racing scenarios where there's not rabbits and there's not just, all right, go out, see who can run the fastest. Probably the third or fourth best country in the world behind Kenya and Ethiopia. And maybe you could put like a Uganda or Eritrea in front mm -hmm. of us. So, um, I think we've been doing well, but not necessarily in a way that's tangible. Um, like nobody really knows what sixth or seventh at New York is, especially when you're six minutes behind the leader. Right. Um, but and that's just kind of my take. I'm sure that somebody on Let's Run will hear this podcast and get mad at me again for it. <laughs> um, you can be but sure I don't give that. a shit. So, uh, um, so the fastest is Ryan Hall still the fastest? Uh, no. Yeah. Sorry. He, so he's run. Ryan's run the fastest ever marathon mm -hmm. by an American. He right. ran. Was it? I think it was two hundred four. Two hundred four fifty eight at Boston. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, and then the American record is two hundred five thirty something by a guy named Khalid Kanuchi from like two thousand five. And then we've had. Galen, Dathan, um, yeah, we've had people Meb. running in the Meb, yeah, yeah, running in the 207s, 20, 208s. Right, mm -hmm. and so your your low 209 is like 11th on that pecking order yep. right now. 11th all time. So heading into trials, you got to get first, second, or third to make the team. Yep. Who who are you? I know you're just thinking about your own race, but who are the other people to watch in your opinion right now? I think. Over the last few years, a guy named Galen Rupp right. has been, on paper, probably the best American marathoner. He's run 206 or something, and he won Chicago, second at Boston. So um, on paper, he's very good um, and should be the favorite probably. Uh, but there's also um, a good friend of mine, Jared Ward, who mm -hmm. finished right ahead of me in New York and then seventh, right behind me in Boston. How much training were you guys doing together? He was in Flagstaff for about a week, so right. we went on a few easy runs and then one really big workout before New York. Yeah. And then I haven't, I didn't really get to train with him since then. But he's your dude. He's a guy. Yeah, yeah. I really like Jared. And we've, we've competed against each other since college mm -hmm. um, because he went to BYU, I went to University of Portland, and they're in the same conference. Right. So I've been racing each other a lot. Usually he's beaten me. Yeah. But um, I'm excited him. to kind you of- got him in Boston. I got him now. in Boston. Yeah, I got the better PR, so I own him now. If you're listening, Jared, right. I own you. Keep that in mind. Um, 
but we've got a good group of other um, really talented runners. Shadrach Biwat has been mm-hmm. top three at Boston. Um, Chris Derrick, unfortunately, just broke his ankle, but he's very talented as well. Uh, Dathan Ritzenhain has run 207. Um, so I think those are those guys and a lot of others um, should be should be uh, ready to go and in good form at the trials. So right. So trials are end of February. Yep, February 29th, uh, Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And how does that course break down for it's you? It's going to be really hilly. Yeah. Um, it looks like it'll, it'll be about 1,300 feet of gain and loss over the course of the race. So it's going to be three eight-mile loops. Um, and I think that favors me. I'm here to race really hard, and I think the lack of rhythm kind of is right up my alley where it's just going to be just going to be really, really hard, and I think that yeah. suits me pretty well. How are you going to not get injured? How am I going to not get injured? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, I've been I've been lucky uh, to be pretty durable, and I think or I go see a I get a massage every week. I we have good two good chiros. I think that's one of the things that a lot of amateur runners could do better mm-hmm. is you put all this money and time into training and stuff, and then as soon as something like pops up, you're like, I'll just figure it out. You know, like my ankle hurts, I'll just I'll just figure it out. It's like no, no, no. Find like a chiro, find a massage therapist, find a physical therapist that you can go see. Like you've you're gonna buy three hundred dollar pair of shoes, but you won't spend. 60 or 80 bucks to go see a professional who's going to yeah. give you exercises and rehab and help you to be healthy. So I do that. I'm a big believer in that. And so Cairo, it, you get like your back cracked and you do decompression or what does that look like specifically? Yeah, a lot of it's ART, active release uh-huh. therapy. So painful. Yeah. Um, the dry needling, our Cairo is a dry needle mm-hmm. certified. And, you know, there's sometimes it's scraping, sometimes it's cupping. Yeah. Cupping. No, they, they haven't ever cupped me, but. Um, I mean, if they ever want to, I trust them. You got to get on the cupping. Got to get on the cupping. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah uh, it's. I would say they they probably look more like a PT than a typical mm-hmm. Cairo. It's not a ton of, like, back cracking spine stuff. It's a lot more, wherever you're kind of injured and trying to figure out the root cause of that. And what is the other aspect of recovery look like for you? Mm-hmm. Like, you do the foam rolling and like the, do you have the Normatec boots and what does that entail? Yeah, I do have the Normatec boots. I try to foam roll a lot and just generally do the rehab that the Kairos give us. Um, and we also go, we do strength work twice mm-hmm. a week in the gym and those are like Olympic lifts, like deadlift, squats, that kind of right. thing. And that's not only performance enhancing, but it's also rehab as well. Right. Um, uh, but I mean, honestly, like I can sit here and talk about all the little tiny things that I do for recovery, but really like sleep is the biggest one. Yeah. I try to take a nap pretty regularly, try to have good sleep hygiene with like not doing stuff in my bed other than sleeping and um, yeah, and try to go to bed a reasonable hour, wake up, get right out of bed, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Just regular sleep stuff. Nothing. It's not too Boring. special. Yeah. yeah. Like, what's your special morning yeah. routine? No, you just get yeah. up. Just you wake up and you get up and drink coffee. That's the morning routine. <laughs> yeah. Um, is uh, is the U.S. Olympic Committee have they like invited you up to Colorado Springs? Is there any of that kind of stuff going on? Like, I know in swimming, like they'll they'll do training camps and mm-hmm. they'll bring like the top people in for you know little week long sessions and things like that. Does it is that does that happen in marathon running or not so much? Yeah. The Olympic Committee's more hands off, I think, in running yeah. than in most sports. And the running's a lot. It's more corporate. I think it's more well funded in the sense that more groups have the resources. We don't necessarily don't need, need to go that, through right. the. USOC. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And so what's the one thing um, 
if there is anything that you're really focused on working on now that you weren't like in your lead up to Boston? Like, is there anything like this is the one thing I really want to master that I feel like was holding me back before? Or is it just I'm doing the same thing? Uh, I mean, the training has changed, I guess, now since I'm not getting ready for a marathon. But in terms of like big picture stuff, I just want to do the same stuff. I want to just I don't need to feel like I need to do extra. I don't need to go back to the drawing board. So I just want to do the same stuff that got me really, really ready for Boston. Yeah. And I don't want to like have this sort of neuroticism where it's like, I need to do more, I need to do more, I need to do more. Do you have a goal time in mind? No, the course is going to be too hard. I just want to yeah. be top, top three. And what is the course like in Tokyo? It will be pretty flat, mm. but it will be really, really hot and humid. Mm-hmm. I think this year on the day it was, we were supposed to have the marathon. Like if it had been this year, it was well into the 90s with 90% humidity. That's really high. Yeah. It'll be brutal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you do any, like, do you go train in certain places to acclimate to that? I mean, because, you know, Flagstaff's super dry. Yeah. And you have the altitude, but it's a completely different climate. I think for the Olympics, we probably will. Uh-huh. Um, whether that's like Houston or Hawaii or maybe even going to like Okinawa or something like that. We haven't, we're trying to make the team first, so we haven't discussed that, but... Um, in general, we're capable, like we have a kind of a sauna protocol if we're going to a really hot um, climate where we'll just sauna for, you know, 15 to 30 minutes, like 10 times in the three weeks leading up mm-hmm. to the race. And that will mm-hmm. kind of help and overdressing and stuff like that. So you don't put the treadmill in the sauna. I haven't done that. No, I've heard of people doing that. People that sounds do that awful. for bad water. Yeah. To train for bad water. I don't ever run on the treadmill either. <laughs> yeah, I would, I know. don't care for the treadmill. So. <laughs> Um, I just rather go outside. So we just we just found the title for the podcast. Yeah, I don't care for the treadmill. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Um, you seem like somebody whose motivation is really internally generated. It's not like, hey, I need to beat this guy or I need to be on this podium or to win. Like this is about you versus you. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't always like that. A lot of it was sort of like like almost petty, like, man, I want to fucking beat this guy. Uh-huh. But um, I think in... Fuck that guy. Yeah, fuck that guy. I got to <laughs> gotta beat these guys. And there was a little of that in the book too. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, in 20, maybe 2017, 2016 maybe? No, it would have been 2017. Uh, I ran the Houston Half Marathon. And it's usually really good weather, really fast course, really flat. This one year, it was just like soupy and we weren't going to run fast. And it got really hard at like 10 miles and I threw myself a little pity party. Like I wasn't running as fast as I wanted to. I wasn't beating the guys I wanted to. And I was like, this is bullshit. I'm, this is stupid. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to drop out. And I kind of jogged it into the finish and it wasn't a good time. And I finished a lot lower than I should have finished. And I kind of like looked at that race and I was like, I probably can't. This probably isn't a sustainable form of mm. motivation mm-hmm. being like, I have to beat these people. I need to figure out a more like sustainable way to push myself. Um, and then like two weeks later, we had the U.S. Cross Country Championships in Bend, Oregon. And it was snowy, it was bad weather, it was really muddy course. And this was to qualify to go to the World Championships. Um, and top six go. I was in the lead group. There was like seven of us going into the last 2K. And down this big hill, I, I fell and slipped and I lost 20 meters or something hammered as hard as I could to try to get back onto the group and I fell again on a corner and all of a sudden like they're like 70 80 meters ahead 
I'm just watching the last world cross country spot go away from me. And I kind of was like, look, maybe that's gone today, but I can still hurt as much as I possibly can. I can go as hard as I possibly can. And that was probably the most I've ever hurt in a race mm. was the last K. I just absolutely dug deep and ripped as hard as I could. And I probably wasn't running that fast, but I was going as hard as I could go. And I was really, really proud of that race because I wasn't worried about what other people were doing. I did the thing that I wanted to do, which mm. was do the best that I could do on that day. And I've kind of made peace with the fact that sometimes I'm going to run as well as I can possibly run and I'm going to get beat. I'm not the most talented, best runner in the world, but, and I can't control who else comes to the line or the fitness that they're in or any of those extrinsic factors, but I can control how well or how hard I go today. And maybe I have a mediocre day and I'm trying to turn that into a good day. Maybe I have a good day like I had in Boston and I'm trying to turn that into a great day. Um, so I don't know. That's kind of been, that's kind of how I got to this point. Yeah. I mean, I like that, you know, that is the sustainable fuel that you need. Um, the anger and the, the sort of lower emotions might get you to a certain place, but ultimately it's not going to serve you over the course of a career. Yeah. You got to find a different seat for that, um, for that drive. But were you always like super competitive when you were a kid? Yeah. Like we, so, you know, like what? What was it like growing up? Like, where does that come from? I don't really know. I mean, I mm. I was just competitive right off the bat. Yeah. Maybe it was just like my just parents. Like, I'm good at this. Yeah. I'm just going to win. Yeah, my parents started us and my sister and I in sports yeah. really young. And it was just like, I realized like it's really fun to be good at something. Uh -huh. And when you kind of butt up against that and you're young, a lot of it is based on how like much do you want it? Like right. talent and training when you're like 12 years old doesn't have as much to do with it as like, you know what, I'm just going to run harder. I'm just going to go deeper mm -hmm. today. Or and your high school had a pretty good program, We right? did, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. We were state champs my sophomore year and then second place my junior year. And we were well, good, did well our my freshman year as well. So uh -huh. we had a good team. And your sister still run? No, she doesn't. Uh -huh. uh, she was never a runner. She did like soccer and basketball and uh -huh. tennis. Yeah. Parents still together? Yep. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's nice. Yeah, it's great. Um, when you look back on, you know, you're still at the beginning of your career, really, but would you, like thinking back to that kid in high school, you know, running cross country, could you have predicted or imagined that you'd be in this situation? I probably imagined I'd be better. Yeah. Realistically. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure like when I was- I love the honesty yeah. of that. I, you know, when I was logging miles in Weir like, I probably- man. Yeah, I probably assumed I'd have three gold medals and yeah. a world record by now, but- So um, it must have been a frustrating decade there. At times, probably. Yeah. I think I probably, like, I got to college, and my first year I didn't handle the freedom and easy access to beer all that well. And uh -huh. I think probably I realigned my expectations, and I've been working back to, like, right. the confidence, I guess, uh -huh. since then. In, so you're behind schedule. Yeah, really, realistically, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Going to have to make all three of these next Olympic teams win gold medals just to impress high right. school Scott. <laughs> well, it's good that you're 27. Yeah, and you got a coach that believes in you. Yeah, absolutely. What would you What would you tell that youngster, like that 16 year old kid? I would say I'd probably tell him make sure it's always fun and find ways to keep it fun mm -hmm. because at certain points in college, like especially that first year when I was running like garbage because I was out until 2 a.m. three times a week and you know, drinking too much and eating like shit. Um, it wasn't fun because it's not that fun to wake up and like be hungover and go for a long run. And I think 
I kind of lost sight of the fact that like, this is a sport, this is a game, it's supposed to be fun. And it took me a little while to maybe find that again. So it's fun for the most part, but there's yeah. gotta be days where you're like, I, can't, I don't wanna get out of bed today. Yeah, but. So what do you, how do you talk your way through that? Cause I think like I'm trying to root it in the experience of a listener who's mm -hmm. like, you know, maybe training for their first marathon and is struggling with, you know, motivation or you know, the kind of strategies that somebody like yourself might employ to get over those humps. Yeah, I mean, I think for most people, they would say that going for a run is the best part of their day. You know, even if it's not every day, but I try to keep that in mind too. It's like, mm, I get to, do get to do it the best part of most people's day for my job. And even if there are things that I don't really like, it's like, it's part of being an adult. It's like doing aspects of your job that you don't necessarily like. And when I really think about it, it's like, I got a pretty sweet yeah. gig here. Like the worst part of my day is doing hamstring rehab or something like that, you uh -huh. know? Um, so I guess like for the average runner who's probably getting up at six, you know, which is not something I do, get, or getting up early and going straight out the door and they've got all these other responsibilities. So making sure it stays as like a get to instead of a have to. Right. Mm -hmm. Sometimes easier said than done. Though, yeah, absolutely. I I mean, Especially you know, when you have some crazy workout looming yeah. over you. I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't want to sit here and say like, I'm some Zen Buddha who always uh -huh. appreciates the gratitude. It's like, no, I have days where I don't want to do shit and I just want right. to like sit at home or I want to go like do something not running, but um, trying to remember that this is this is a sweet thing I yeah. get to do. A little extra Andy Puttacom on those days. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Um, and how do you keep uh, the Olympic dream in perspective? Because that that looms so heavy, right? Like mm -hmm. it's it's just such a a massively ambitious thing, and you know the dream of a lifetime. And I would imagine it it would be easy for it to kind of you know infect you in not a good way, unless you're able to like kind of, you know, keep it in check. Yeah, I try not to deal with it too much. Like that as like an end, you know, I have gotten to this point where I've, I got to the point where I got to in Boston because I wasn't thinking about like, I have to win Boston, nor do I think I have to make the Olympic mm. team. I'm just gonna prepare as well as I can. I'm gonna try to focus on doing the best I can do today on this thing. And then I have faith that if I do well at the things that I need to do now, the end will be there. And I am willing to bet on myself that I'll be tough enough and strong enough and fit enough to to accomplish things. I don't need to do, I don't need to like have some huge carrot of yeah. the Olympic rings down the road. Do you do any visualization techniques? Like when you're getting ready for a big race, you've been on the course at Boston, you know every turn or whatever, do you like walk yourself through it mentally? Like what do you do before you line up on the starting line? In, in you know in that kind of sense i let myself visualize when i'm on runs usually like thinking about the last few miles and imagine just feeling not imagine feeling really good but imagine running really well i think it's important to acknowledge that this is really going to hurt like mm -hmm. it, it's not helpful to visualize it not hurting because it's going to hurt um so i i let myself visualize things in the race or like it, while i'm on runs i imagine or i imagine the race yeah. Yeah. And then once I get to the line, it's really a matter of like me not letting myself write the story before I before it happens, you know. Uh -huh. It's just I just want to be where I'm at and that's kind of what I do when I'm on the line. I try to 
you know, in, in mindfulness, it's called like grounding usually where you just focus on your feet touching the ground. That's kind of what I do usually before races. I don't need to get hyped up. I don't need to get, um, like out of my head or whatever. I just want to be where I am. Right. Yeah. I think that's really important. I mean, one of the things that you hear with marathon runners or ultra distance athletes, there are moments where, you know, it's not going well and it's easy to just not just throw a pity party, but just think, well, I'm done, you know, but to stay grounded and present with what you're doing and with experience understanding that just because you feel lousy now, like five minutes from now, you might feel great. Feel like great. these things change. Absolutely. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's, um, Amy Craig had a really good quote about this. She's a wonderful marathoner, but, um, she said, I know I'm going to have good miles and I know I'm going to have bad miles and I don't know what order they're going to come in. Mm. And sometimes I remind myself of that and, I think another thing that happens a lot, at least to me, is like when I'm feeling bad, when I feel like I'm having a bad mile, if I actually check in, if I'm actually like, okay, how do I actually feel? It's really not that bad. It's probably mm -hmm. like my mind's projection that I'm supposed to be feeling bad. So being present and like actually checking in with how your legs feel right. can make you feel better. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, distinguishing between how you actually feel and the story that you're telling yourself yeah. about how you feel, which is probably the worst, mm -hmm. right? Worse than you actually feel. Yeah. Like right? in Boston, for example, like we got through the halfway mark and I think I was 104.40 and the fastest I'd ever come through the half marathon mark in a marathon was like 106.12 or uh -huh. something like that. And so I think my mind was like, uh oh, like, oh shit, you're in uncharted right. territory here. <laughs> yeah. Like we're 90 seconds under pace. Uh -huh. And they were like, you better, they're telling my legs, like, you better slow down. When I actually felt what my legs felt and like checked in with my body, it's like, no, like I'm fine. I'm, fine. I'm okay. Mm. Like this, I just am expecting to hurt and you have to kind of, I'm not expecting to feel shitty. I'm expecting right. that this is too fast, but in actuality, I'm not feeling that bad. Yeah. And pretty close to even splitting it. Yeah. A negative split at Boston. Oh, did you, oh, you negative split? Yeah. I was 104.40, oh, 104.29. Wow. wow. Which is hard because the yeah. second half has the Newton Hills. Super hard. Mm -hmm. But the best marath marathon performances are pretty even, right? In terms of first and first and back half, yeah. Or? I mean, in terms of speed, yeah. If you were going to run, um, like the fastest you could run, you would want it to be even. Uh -huh. But the best performances in terms of like winning races are almost all negative split. Okay. Because you generally, especially at races like Boston, New York, and Chicago, like there are big moves at the end mm -hmm. where people will run, be running, right, having really really fast miles, yeah, to break the race open. What do you think about uh, Gwen Jorgensen's uh, proclamation about making the Olympic team. You know, I, mean, I had yeah. on the podcast recently. Yeah, I, mean, I listened listen to that. But um, I mean, it's a you know, it's a bold statement. And mm -hmm. one of the things I asked her was like, you know, what was that like after saying, you know, like sort of okay, you win the gold medal in triathlon, you retire, and then you make this announcement, and then you show up at Bowerman. Like how mm -hmm. how'd that go? Right? Like how are you received? And it seems like people were happy to receive her by her account, but I'm interested in how the marathon world is kind of what the reception is. Yeah. Um, so I guess when I first heard she said, okay, I'm going to go win the gold medal. I was kind of like, yeah, all right, bullshit, Gwen. Like, come on, like, let's be real here. Let's be, I kind of thought it was like too brash and too, um, it was too much, I think was my initial reaction. And then I was like, well, like, why do I think that? Like, she has every right to have whatever goal she wants to have. And I think it's great that she's sharing it. Like, mm -hmm. I think my, I should have taken a second before I was like, 
before in my head I was like, nah, fuck that. That's a that's a stupid thing to say. Because in real reality, it's like I kind of admire I admire her for a having the highest goals possible and b being open and honest, right? Like being unafraid putting, to just say that, yeah. Knowing that mm-hmm. it will, you know, there's going to be some people that aren't going to receive it so well. Yeah, like I should have I should have taken a beat and been yeah. like, well, good on her, you know. Um, but I admit that I, I didn't at first. Yeah. Well, it'll be exciting to watch. Yeah, I you know, I, I hope she's. I know she has had some injury issues. I hope she's yeah, healthy yeah. and ready to go on the line. I think she's making her way back. So are, is the is it trials? Are the women and the men running like the same weekend or how does that work? Yeah, we'll run on the same day. Oh, same um, day. We actually just got an email about this. I think it's the current plan right now. The men will start at 12.03 on February 29th. The women will start 20 minutes later so that we're not lapping them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll be three eight-mile loops and then a 2.2-mile stretch out of the loop to finish wow Mm -hmm. so on the course at the same time yeah that'll be interesting they the us atf has assured us that we shouldn't be the men shouldn't be lapping women until the third lap and it should be spread out enough Mm -hmm. where it won't be like trying to navigate huge groups and i think the top women will be probably catching the top men or the sorry the the stragglers on the men's side um at some point as well because at the moment I think like 700 people have qualified for the Olympic trials. Mm -hmm. So it'll be a huge event. Um, And is it strictly like for second or third or are there other like weird things that happen, you know, as you see in other sports? Yeah, so for the US, it was so convoluted, super, super convoluted until maybe like five weeks ago where there was like an A standard and then there was a point system and it was going to be, like, it was what like, is going on? It's like, you know, yeah. not even people in the sport could explain uh-huh. how it was going to work. And, um, luckily, uh, the USATF lobbied the IAAF, which is the governing body of sports, the sport to, um, make the Olympic trials like a gold label event. And to what that means shortcut is that the top three across the line will make the team. They mm-hmm. will achieve the standard and be eligible for the Olympics and the USATF will just have to submit their names. And mm-hmm. The top three will go at the, from the trials. And that's it. Like if somebody else two weeks later at some other marathon runs some yeah. crazy nope. time or somebody gets injured, there's a purity injured, to that. I mean, that's the yeah. way it's been done in swimming forever. Mm-hmm. Like it's just very, like there's no other, it's just your first or second or that's it. Yeah, and I think there's some, um, there's some wiggle room with injuries. You can kind of uh-huh. after or b- before a certain date, but yeah, it's been like that for the marathon for a really long time. The standards were um, slow enough where if you won the Olympic trials or you were top three at the Olympic trials, you had the standard, and that was awesome. It made for great events and great, um, just a really cool, dramatic thing. There was finality, uh-huh. um, and it was kind of in danger for a little while, but luckily that's not the case. Yeah. So you make the team. It's also I I feel like the timing is really good too. Like it gives you plenty of time to mm-hmm. build to take a break and then build back up. Yeah. In swimming, they keep it's like perilously close to mm-hmm. the actual game. So it's always this weird science experiment of like, do you train hard or you maintain? Like, but here being at end of February, like you have a nice block after that. Yeah, and on the track, it's more similar to swimming, where the Olympic trials will be in the summer, uh-huh. and then the people who make the team will go to the Olympics later that summer. So right. um, I think for shorter distances, that's probably good because you don't have to like end your season necessarily, even at, if the race is a 10K, like you're probably pretty beat up and maybe 
you feel bad for a few days, but you can come back and still be fit. Uh-huh. With a marathon, that's not really an option. Like you couldn't, they couldn't have the marathon in like May or even you know later, like July. Yeah, there's no like way. four weeks later, you can't <laughs> run another marathon. <laughs> yeah, it would be it would go yeah. awful. It'd be terrible. <laughs> yeah. Um. So it kind of you know it's uh, a little bit event specific in that regard. Right. All right, we got to wind this down in a minute here. Okay. But, um, one of the things I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about is just. You know, now that like you're in the media a little bit more, like, is there anything that you think people get wrong about you, or is there a narrative out there that you feel like they don't understand what I'm trying to do here? Like, just want to give you the opportunity to like correct the record if there's anything out there where you think people are misunderstanding you or marathon running in general for that matter. Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about the difference between like what good is and what fast is and how those aren't necessarily 100% the same thing. Oh, that's kind of been the thing I've probably gotten the most shit for online. Um, people chastising my opinion that good can be finishing high and not just running fast. Uh-huh. Um, like but in general, you mean like hearkening back to some imaginary golden yeah. age of American marathon running exactly. that actually didn't exist? Exactly. That's yeah. 100% correct. <laughs> okay. Yeah. If, if somebody wants to go through the history books and Show me an era where people were running sub 210 every uh-huh. single time out. I would be happy to hear about it. I don't mm-hmm. think it exists. Um, other than that, I think I've done a pretty good job of like telling my own story and communicating um, the messages that I personally wanted to communicate. And so um, I've just done it myself as opposed to like letting other people get it wrong. Yeah. Um, but yeah. All right. It's kind of it. The only thing I would say, and I know this is going to be a shock to a lot of people is I don't actually only eat burritos. I know we didn't talk a ton about burritos, but <laughs> yeah. I've got this like reputation online for eating a lot of burritos. You and created people, that narrative. Absolutely, 100% yeah. I did. Um, but I think some people think that's the only thing I eat. Mm-hmm. And I would like to go on the record as saying I only mostly eat burritos. There are other aspects you of You only my mostly diet. or you mostly only? Mo- um, the main th- food How is many the burritos, burritos a week? I mean, on a good week, like six. Yeah. On a bad week. One, two. I'm with you. I probably so eat that. good. I probably eat that many burritos. Yeah, home burritos. They're all perfect. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a couple burrito recommendations. Okay. while you're in LA. Absolutely. Are you going to be? Where are you guys going after this? Are you going to be on the west side? I think we're going back towards Ontario, uh-huh. and then LAX. Oh, LAX, oh by LAX. Yeah. yeah. So hit Holy Guacamole on, Holy Guacamole. Main, on main Street in Santa Monica. That's okay. my favorite. Every time I go to LAX or I fly into LAX and I'm making my way back home, I always drop in there. Holy Guacamole. It's just a little hole in the wall place, Perfect. but they make a good, it's pretty good. Burrito. Are there, um, does the menu have pictures? No. Oh, okay. I, I like the menu with the, the pictures. Yeah. And I like, you know, I mean, I'll, I like, there's a lot of like just the, the, old school food trucks, not the yep. fancy food okay. trucks, but yeah, like yeah. the ones that park at construction sites and stuff yep, like that. That's Those clutch. are some of the, really some of the good. better burritos yeah, around. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, right. I guess I had to get the burrito plug in yeah. there. Sorry, Rich. And uh, all right, final question. What's the movie you're you're most anticipating right now? Let's see. Like that's coming out? Yeah. Um, man, I've, I'm upset that I don't remember the name. What's the name of the movie that's coming out that Lena Waithe wrote? Sunny, Sunny, and something. It's got Michael Kiwanuka. Ke- oh, I don't, I don't even, think that's don't that's his name. Not this. named Michael Kiwanuka. Michael, he was in Widows and he was in Get Out. Oh, right. I know. You yeah, know. and then I don't know the woman. It's I'm interested to see that one. Mm. And I just watched. This summer has been a good movie summer. We had Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We had Hobbs and Shaw, and we had John Wick Three. <laughs> so I had a really good summer of movies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
I have a good John Wick 3 story. I'll tell okay, you after the perfect. podcast. Absolutely. All right, cool. Well, uh, I'm so excited um, for Olympic trials. I can't wait to watch you, and I'm cheering for you. You're one of the good guys, man, and uh, I'm excited to see what you're going to do. It's super exciting, so best of luck to you. Thank you so much, Rich, and thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, once you make the Olympic team and go to Tokyo and all that, come back and, and tell us about it, will you? Sounds good. I'll just try to live up to the image I had of myself in high school. Now we can come talk about it. <laughs> yes, yeah. please do that. Uh, in the meantime, everybody check out Inside a Marathon. Um, it's not on Amazon, right? Like you got to nope. get it to your website. Yeah, through so the website. ScottFobble.com. We should Why have- get it up on Amazon? Well, because they would make us charge like $40 uh, for it. Okay. Um, but we want to, we're doing it through our own website. Inside a Marathon, second edition should be coming out soon. I don't know when this mm -hmm. podcast will drop. Hopefully we'll have the book out by then and we'll have an e-version as well. Kindle oh, cool. Version, so. Awesome. Yeah. Audiobook? Audiobook. No, not an audiobook. I'm not doing that. That's too long. <laughs> Unless we can get Morgan Freeman to read it. I don't want to well, do it. Well, now that yeah. you're a podcaster. Yeah, that's true. You know? I could, we could do it. You that, should do uh, that. Yeah. You could bring in like guest people to like mimic your voice. Yeah. One your person. Buddies. Yeah. If, if we get, there's like 22 chapters. If 22 people volunteer, you can all read one chapter. That's fine with me. All right. You should do that. Okay. Um, in the meantime, scottfobble.com, uh, at sfobs on Instagram. Yep. And, and at Scott Fobbs on Twitter. Right. Yeah. Cool, man. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Peace. Peace. Good luck. Thanks, man. Very cool. Good dude, that Scott. Like I said, somebody that you want to root for, that you want to see prevail. So let's do this. Let's send a rounding roar of support to Scott, who I imagine right now is probably pretty deep in the throes of heavy training at the moment, given that... Olympic trials are, I think about 11 or 12 weeks away at this point, uh, by hitting him up on the socials. You can find him on Twitter at Scott Fobbs, F-A-U-B-S, and on Instagram, he is at S Fobbs. Uh, you can learn even more about him at scottfobble.com and of course, in the show notes on the episode page on my website. And don't forget to pick up a copy of his book with his coach, Ben Rosario, Inside a Marathon. It's pretty great especially if marathon running lands on your 2020 list of New Year's resolutions, or as a great gift, I might add. If you'd like to support our work here on the show, subscribe, rate, and comment on the program on Apple Podcasts. That really helps new people discover the show, which is super important. Tell your friends about your favorite episode, share the show on social media, hit that subscribe button on YouTube, Spotify, Google, wherever you listen to this. And you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. Much love and appreciation for my team who helps put on this show every week. I do not do this alone. Jason Camiello for audio engineering, production, show notes, interstitial music. Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin for videoing the program, editing it, creating all the beautiful short clips. Jessica Miranda for her graphics wizardry. Allie Rogers for her beautiful portraits. DK for advertiser relationships and theme music by Anna Lemma. Appreciate the love you guys. I will see you back here in a couple days with another great episode with the one and the only Srimati, my wife, Julie Pyatt. And until then, remember, it's not complicated, people. Get outside, run, move, and remember, mood follows action.